a Monday. It's Bob McCowan. It's uh, John Shannon on the uh, program. Uh, thanks for joining. Hello, us. Robert. Hello, John. Uh, he is. Uh, he's been on with us on numerous occasions in the past. Uh, always a variety of topics, and um, he's never boring. <laughs> uh, he uh, he'll tell you what he thinks, and um, a lot of times he'll get in trouble uh, for it. Or he won't get in trouble. He won't get it. He'll Come create on. controversy over what he says. He makes whether you that think. Hap- whether that happens today or not, I do not know, but we will find out. Would you like to throw in another sentence or two? I just wanted to say he makes you think. That's what he does. I like him. Well, he does that too. Alan Walsh, agent uh, to hockey players, uh, will uh, join us and a little conversation about the days when he was at the table on the prosecution side for probably the most famous trial of my lifetime, the trial of OJ Simpson. Alan Walsh, when we come back after these messages. It's Bob McCallum. It's uh, John Shannon on the program uh, today. And uh, with us, um, a um, not regular guest, but um, perhaps infrequent. Agent uh, provocateur. Uh, Alan Walsh is uh, with us. How are you? Everything okay? <laughs> Everything's great. It's a pleasure to be with you guys again. Uh, we want to get into some hockey stuff um, at length, but uh, we did want to um, take a moment for uh, to um, acknowledge the passing of F. Lee Bailey, one of the most uh, renowned legal minds in um, America and perhaps the world. And, uh, of course, F. Lee Bailey sat on the defense side of the trial of O.J. Simpson, one of the most famous, highly publicized uh, trials in um American history, and you were on the other desk and uh, had a chance to sit across the table, essentially, from um, uh, the legendary Mr. Bailey. Is there an intimidation factor that happens among lawyers in in that kind of a situation? Well, you got to remember back then, they called it the legal dream team with uh, Robert Shapiro and uh, Johnny Cochran, who were both very renowned criminal defense attorneys. But F. Lee Bailey wrote a book that was very influential to my going to law school in the first place. And I had uh, done a lot of reading on the Sam Shepard case that he was involved with, the Boston Strangler that he was involved with uh, in defending. So here I was walking through the corridors of the criminal courts building in downtown LA and walking towards me in the other direction was F. Lee Bailey. Now, he was certainly past his prime at that point, but the looks and the aura and the charisma that emanated off of him as he came down the corridor, it was a celebrity walking down the corridor into the courtroom. Uh, So you talk about intimidation factor, uh, it certainly played a part in the in the entire circus that was uh, emanating out of L.A. at that time, for sure. How did it impact um, the prosecution's, I wouldn't say case, but style, or did it? He, he didn't have uh, a, a very major role in the courtroom itself. And no one was really privy to what was going on behind the scenes uh, with them. Uh, But 
he did famously cross-examine Mark Furman mm-hmm. uh, and, and had an iconic moment during the trial where he spoke to him from Marine to Marine. And that, uh, that certainly is one of the moments that people recall from his involvement. Um, but he was there, he was present, and uh, he certainly brought uh, the level of dream team um, uh, prominence to the entire proceedings. The interesting thing, Alan, is, is that here, here's a guy that um, was obviously very successful at a time. Um, and in his life, ran a, really wrote a roller coaster uh, on the professional side. Uh, had to declare bankruptcy in 2016. Uh, had, had just finished writing another book about the Simpson trial that I guess is coming out soon again. Um, so, so from that perspective, he's, uh, he is the classic Hollywood story for somebody who lived in Southern California, isn't he? Yeah, and if you recall, it was around uh, maybe a few years before the Simpson case. He actually had his own TV show uh, involving lie detectors. And he would bring in people from uh, who were accused of crimes or charged with crimes or convicted of crimes around the country and administer a lie detector test to uh, verify uh, uh, their innocence, uh, so to speak. And we were just coming into the period where DNA evidence was uh, being allowed the scientific community uh, had brought DNA to the point where it was allowed to be admitted into evidence in a criminal trial. So there were a lot of things involved at the beginning. I was, I mean, what was I? I was 26, 27 years old at the time. Uh, so it was, it was quite a heady experience just being around it all. Yeah, you, you, you talked about the, the Sam Shepard case, and, and most people will not remember the, the Sam Shepard case, but he was a doctor in Ohio uh, and became the basis for a TV show and then uh, eventually movies, The Fugitive, who, and he right. got him, and, and F. Lee Bailey got Shepard off based on that there was a, uh, another attacker in the house. It wasn't necessarily a one-armed man, but it was... <laughs> <laughs> there was another attacker in the house that well before DNA, well before DNA. Yeah. Uh, let's get on to uh, hockey stuff. Um, I understand you were, you have a couple of clients uh, with the uh, golden Knights. Oh, yeah. oh yes. Just a couple, eh? just a couple. Yeah. Um, <laughs> among them, Pacioretty and flurry who are uh, obviously <laughs> prominent members of, uh, of that team. You had your issues with, uh, with flurry. Um, a little over a year ago. Um, and that seems to have settled down since your client is playing virtually every game. I think he's played every game in the playoffs except the one, has he not? Correct. Yes, every, every one except the first game of the last series. Which uh, which Vegas got clobbered 7-1 in. Uh, Pacioretty was hurt, um, has come back. Um, I assume he's healthy. Well, I know he's healthy enough to play. Is he 100% or close to it? Well, I can't really comment on, on the status of his health right now, but uh, I think we can assume by his play in the, uh, in the seven games he's played that uh, he's feeling pretty good right now. So, so what does an agent, I mean, these guys are long, I mean, Max is a relatively new client to you, but Mark Andre you've had since he was a teenager. Um, 
what does an agent do for a veteran player during a play, a Stanley Cup playoff run? Stay out of the way. <laughs> uh, we, you know, we, we, we talk, um, I, you know, on, on a, on a daily or, or, or every other day basis, um, just kind of keep the player loose, keep the conversation away from the games itself and talk about other things, maybe other things going on in the league. Um, I know what their interests are off the ice, away from the game, talk about some of those things, check in, uh, but mostly you want to um, stay out of the way and let the player do what he does best. This is not the time to be talking business with a player in any sense. So um, in many ways, I'm just along for the ride as well. How conflicted do you get when you have clients on um, other on opposite sides of the ice? I, I got to the point where you don't really cheer for teams anymore. And I haven't since I became an agent in 1995, I really just cheer for clients. And uh, if, if you have clients on opposing teams and someone scores or someone uh, makes a great save, you're happy for them. But there really is nothing invested in a particular team winning. It's the clients themselves that you're uh, supporting and wanting to see succeed. Uh, having said that, you've obviously spent a fair bit of time watching the Golden Knights, um, if not because of your client list, um, because they have been prominent. Um, I have had the opinion almost since the beginning of these playoffs that the two teams that I thought were worthy, capable of, of winning a Stanley Cup would be Tampa to come back again and do it, and I still think that, and Vegas is the other one. Um, never really buying into Colorado. Uh, do you concur with that assessment? I mean, it, the Islanders are up one nothing, but um, I don't think I'd be confident if I was um, Lou Lamorello in the Islanders. Would you? What I what I've learned is that uh, many times the teams that are the most obvious to win, many times don't. And uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, uh, a group of agents inside Octagon put together a, uh, a little playoff pool where we would send uh, our predictions each round to each other. And I think one year I was, uh, I, I was 0 for 8. And uh, I, I learned very quickly. And it, it was a humbling experience sitting there before a series and picking winners. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, uh, certain people rise to the occasion. Uh, sometimes people that you never really expected to have a tremendous impact on a series. And many times the deciding factor in, in a series when you get down to conference finals or Stanley Cup finals is just pure luck. If you have it, uh, you, you can go all the way some years and trying to re recreate that luck the, pre mm -hmm. the next year or years later, it's very difficult to do. L luck and less injuries, <laughs> and that's which part is part of, of luck. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Alan, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, and it was something you actually that you you are one of the most active uh, player agents on social media. Um, you rightly so took issue with a, a reporter who who took ish, took umbrage of how player safety uh, hearings were working. Uh, and you tweeted out a couple of weeks ago um, uh, the process of a hearing, particularly uh, the uh, what we would describe as the in-person hearings. But I think it exists for the phone hearings as well. Right. Can you can you actually I mean, without getting into, you know, legalese, can you can you go through what happens when the phone call is made to the general manager and then the player and then obviously the players association of the process of what goes on with a with a Department of Player Safety hearing? Sure. So it begins with an email uh, copy to all the parties involved uh, indicating there's going to be a hearing. Uh, the date and time of the hearing, uh, a description of the incident, along with a video clip attached that goes to everyone, uh, everyone in NHL New York, uh, the club general manager, uh, the agent on behalf of the player, and the NHLPA. Uh, at the hearing, let's say it's a telephone hearing, Everyone, which means the suspension, if there is one, would be less than five games. Uh, everyone is on the call. Um, the call is being led by uh, Department of Player Safety. They speak about the incident. <clears throat> they, they have, excuse me, <clears throat> they have video and uh, the video is shown. Uh, and then uh, usually the then they ask the player to describe the incident and to uh, put the incident in the light most favorable to the player, explain what was going on in his mind, what his perceptions were at the time of the incident. He'll probably talk, player will probably talk for about five minutes, seven minutes. And uh, next it goes to the general manager of the club uh, and he can add anything that he likes uh, to add, you can also go back and review the video and uh, you can share a screen and go through specific frame by frame elements of the video, break that all down. Uh, then the agent is given a time to speak. The agent's role in the hearing is usually um, related to whether the player is a repeat offender and whether there's a history of uh, repetitive conduct relating to a similar type of incident. Uh, and then the NHL speaks last, NHLPA speaks last, and they talk about um, um, the process and, and making sure that the players' rights pursuant to the CBA have been respected. Uh, they're not there as the quote-unquote criminal defense attorney arguing on behalf of the player that there should be no suspension or reduced suspension. Really, those arguments come mostly from the player, the general manager, uh, and to a somewhat lesser extent, the agent. Um, the NHLPA's role on the call is really, and it's very misunderstood, but the role on the call is, is really to guarantee that the correct process is being followed and the player's rights pursuant to the CBA are being completely respected in every regard. So, some would argue that 
how can the PA be involved and protect the uh, the assailant and not worry about the victim? Uh, and I think that, uh, quite frankly, I think that was what actually you took issue with on social media more than anything. How how, how do you how do you talk about that? Well, I don't think the the uh, you compare it to a, a criminal trial, and you have a prosecution and you have a defense. And with any crime, uh, usually there's a victim. Uh, the, the victim um, is heard really at the entire end of the process at sentencing with a victim impact statement. The role of presenting uh, that kind of testimony rests with the Department of Player Safety because they're going to present uh, a testimony, for lack of a better word, indicating uh, an injury to the player who was a victim uh, in a certain incident. Um, there are medical reports related to how severe the injury is. Uh, so that evidence does come out within the hearing but the NHLPA is a, is a sports labor union. And while they collectively represent all players, what happens if a, play, if a person is a member of a union and gets injured on the job uh, by another employee and there is some sort of disciplinary hearing uh, in, in that labor situation? Uh, the NHLPA is doing what they're supposed to be doing in that situation, and that is protecting and ensuring the rights of the person facing a hearing are being respected pursuant to the CBA. And it is not the NHLPA's job to defend the victim per se. All of that information is coming out within the hearing. One of the things we have been discussing this for um, some time now, and I don't remember when it, when we started on this, John, it was maybe the cadre situation, but I'm not positive. I think so. Yeah. Um, and I mean, the cadre one is, is intriguing. Um, as you know, he, the London, Ontario guy played, played with the Knights, uh, played with the Toronto Maple Leafs. So we here in Southern Ontario got a chance to see him every day. He's a talented hockey player. You know, the days of the of the pure goon with no skill who do nothing but uh, create chaos um, are essentially gone now in the National Hockey League, thank goodness. But Kadri has now been suspended six times. Um, I need not tell you that in the criminal justice system, both in Canada and the United States, repeat offenders are ultimately dealt with differently than first-time offenders, at least in terms of punishment. Um I don't see that happening in the National Hockey League. Uh, can you explain? Let me let, let me leave it at that to start. Well, first of all, does he agree? Well, okay. Do you agree that that repeat offenders should be dealt with differently? Because punishment, as you know, is supposed to act as a deterrent societally and in the National Hockey League. And if an athlete is, is being suspended over and over and over again for similar offenses, and I think we could categorize all the offenses in the NHL as being similar, because they are dangerous plays, um, presumably intended to injure. But how do you quantify um, the repeat offender? 
And, and how do you justify or substantiate um, allowing them to continue ad nauseum? I've been a, that's a great question, Bob. I've been a very vocal critic of the Department of Player Safety, which in and of itself is a acronomic joke. Um, I have a lot of respect for George Paros as a person, but there has been zero consistency uh, or transparency from uh, that group. Uh, players don't know what is suspendable and what isn't. And repeat offenders, specifically players who have been through the process three, four, five times, at some point there needs to be uh, true enforcement in a sense to protect all the other players playing the game. We know about traumatic brain injury. We know about multiple concussions. Oh, everybody knows about that and acknowledges it and the potential for long-term neurodegenerative degenerative disease um, impacting players' careers after hockey, except Gary Bettman, who denies that CTE is even a thing right now, so uh, that it exists. So you can go on and on and on about Department of Player Safety, George Paros, but really I believe it begins at the top. It begin, if Gary Bettman wanted true enforcement of head injuries uh, and curtailing these kinds of incidents, he would mandate it right from the top. There would be strict enforcement and the game would be safer and everyone would know where we stand. And it was Ken Dryden who said it several years ago, and I believe he's right. There needs to be a strict liability rule against all hits to the head, whether intentional, incidental, or accidental. You get hit in the head, it's a major penalty. Boom, done. Everybody will adjust their behavior on the ice and the game will be safer and we'll have less of these types of incidents but it falls on deaf ears. You know, I, I, just to be the devil's advocate, Alan, you don't think the CBA, uh, you know, discourages that from the, from the league being able to do that? The, the rule book as it's, as it's written now is not being enforced. And it does not clearly say strict liability, accidental hits to the head, are punishable by a major penalty. So the one sense, there is a checking to the head penalty, but it needs to have intent behind it and it's rarely called. So that's- How do you measure my... intent? Right. How do you measure intent? That's, that's why it needs to be strict liability because you um... can't. It's unrelated in many ways, but Major League Baseball, uh, several years ago, when the drug thing first uh, surfaced, uh, finally instituted a policy whereby your first offense, you got a 50-game suspension. Your second offense, you got a one-year suspension. Your third offense, you're out of the game. Why doesn't hockey adopt a similar kind of philosophy with regard to uh, 
uh, suspendable offenses. I'm not necessarily well, it, saying it, a parallel one, but something similar. Yes, you, you know who the but you know who the driving force between for those suspensions were. You know who the driving force was, the players themselves. The players themselves were the driving force. Well, so, whatever, whatever the case is, would that would that be helpful in this sport? And, and let me explain first. I have long been of the philosophy that the National Hockey League's great fear is that if they institute a quote unquote death penalty for a particular offense, that one of the stars will be subject to that kind of punishment. And they have great fear that one of their big ticket items will suddenly be forced to sit out an extended mm -hmm. period of time or maybe even be suspended forever. Nazem Kadri is a very good hockey player, but Nazem Kadri doesn't sell a whole lot of tickets. Nazem Kadri is not one of the elite star players in the National Hockey League. Six times. How... How far do you go? Let me go back to the original question. Do you like the idea that of, of Major League Baseball? One, two, three strikes, you're out. I, I like the concept. I don't know if it's three, four, what the, what the right number of repeat offenses and to what severity. Uh, I don't know what that is, but the concept of a, a clearly delineated progressive punishment resulting in a, a death penalty like suspension is something I would be behind from the very beginning. And, and do you, do you think the players association would? I'm, I, I don't I, want, I know I, you can't I, speak for them. I, I can't speak for them. Uh, what I can say is that um, if anybody ever called me and cared about my opinion, that would be uh, the opinion I would put out to anyone who asked. Uh, let's take the break. We'll uh, come back with more Alan Walsh's uh, with us, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about this upcoming offseason and the premise that um, free agents may have a tough go uh, this year. Uh, we'll address that when we come back after these messages. It's Bob McCowan. It's uh, John Shannon. Uh, Alan Walsh, agent to the stars, is uh, with us. Um the word is that there's not going to be much money available for um, NHL free agents uh, during the uh, upcoming off season and that it might be hard to find new places to land and get the kinds of economic deals that players have seen. I was going to say have become used to, but most of the time free agents, um, you know, it's their first or maybe second time that you don't get multiple kicks of the can generally at this. What is your sense of what this offseason is going to be like, Alan? Well, my sense is that the cap is going to remain uh, relatively flat at 81.5 million upper limit until the 2024-2025 season. With a flat, it's not just one year, because if it was a one-year pause in the incremental raising of the upper limit, it would have some impact on this off season, but teams would be able to uh, creatively put together deals in free agency, taking into account the expected rise over the next year or two or three. But the fact that we're most likely going to be flat until at least 2024, I think with so many teams up against the cap right now, 
perhaps the few top unrestricted free agents will see multiple offers uh, to what has been uh, out there in the recent past. But beyond that, I think there just isn't enough available dollars within the system to allow for a robust and widespread UFA market. Uh, the free agent frenzies we have seen in the recent past uh, will certainly be on hold for at least the next four years. How, how will how will the players, how will the agents, I guess, how will, I mean, I don't expect you, you don't work for a team, but how will the teams adapt to that? I think teams are going to offer what they can offer and, uh, and, and try to be as creative as they possibly can to squeeze every available dollar out of their cap situation uh, and make use of every single possible uh, 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 leverage point they can uh, generate on their side, whether it's making use of putting players in the American League and bring up bring up a million two in cap space on on that you know bearing a player there, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's buying players out, uh, there certainly is going to be uh, behavior approaching free agency and when we get into free agency, where teams are going to be scrounging for every available dollar they can muster. Under the circumstances, do you see um, shorter-term contracts being offered or longer-term contracts being offered? I, I, that's also a great question. I think it depends uh, on the player. It's hard to generalize that wide. Um, but my personal preference uh, has always been towards shorter deals if you look at how the NBA and in, in the sense you see a trend starting in Major League Baseball, but mostly in the NBA, players have never been concerned about doing short-term deals. And that's because they've seen a dramatic rise in their salary cap and to maximize their compensation to capture the uh, greatest amount of available dollars within the universe of their cap going short makes the most sense. I think we're going to see a trend develop in hockey towards that uh, with the NHL at least for the next three or four years. I, I look, you looked like you were going to say something, John. No. Well, you know, the, the last couple of uh, collective bargaining agreement negotiations, we have constantly seen the end of the middle class, you know, the middle class player. Uh, don't you think this will just exacerbate that? Sure. We're going to see uh, the top players making top player money. And uh, the, the, the three and a half million dollar third line player uh, will go the way of the dodo bird. Mm -hmm. And uh, after, after, the top players get their money. We're going to see a lot of players at the 750, 800 number. We saw that last off season where a number of very good players who in a different atmosphere would be making 2 million, two and a half million. We're making under a million dollars. 
and that middle class is going to continue to get squeezed as we go forward. As an agent, as an agent that, you, you know, some of your guys are at the high end, some of your guys won't be at the high end. How do you manage that communication, particularly when they sit in a room across the way from each other? You know what I mean? Well, so, how, you know, they're, they're looking at certain situations and they see this guy over here making a lot more money than they are. Uh, and listen, they're human, too. They get jealous. Sure. I, I think the most important thing uh, an agent can do is intensively educate their clients on the realities of the situation and, and approach the situation with as much information as you possibly can and as much honesty as you possibly can. Uh, so the player isn't just given a, a blanket statement of there just isn't money out there, but you get down to the mechanics and the history and the realities and the team's actual cap situation so that they truly understand where they're at, why this is happening. And, and I've always believed knowledge is power and uh, you need to intensively educate your players uh, as to each of their situations. Their players and their families, correct? <laughs> yes, very important. <laughs> yeah, um, here in Toronto, uh, you know, a couple of those guys that um, came in at minimum salaries, Joe Thornton, uh, Jason Spezza, um, I think it would be safe to say that, um, well, nobody, nobody's going to be. Those guys are, those guys are different though, Joe, uh, uh, Bob, those guys are different because they, they, they've got, they're, they're now playing as a hobby. Well, they're, okay. they're, they, they're I, not, they're not playing. They came to play here thinking that they would win. They didn't come here for the money. Quite frankly, neither of them did. They came here to play. Well, of course, they didn't they come were on for the money, roster. John. That's obvious. They made seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they're yeah, and they were multi-million-dollar hockey players. The point of difference is that since free agency, when free agency started, we all recall who the 31, 32 years old you had to be, used to be, to, yeah. be to, to get become a free agent, and there were a bunch of guys who were getting, you know, substantial salaries relative to the time, at age 31, 32, 33. And now we are entering a period of time when a guy in that range, uh, salary range, is going not going to be looking at a um, uh, an increase in salary. He's going to be looking at a dramatic reduction in salary if he wants to continue playing. And I'm wondering whether we're, the result of that is inevitably this league is going to be younger because a lot of those players will say it's not worth playing except for 750. Or at 33 years of age, there's a, a pattern of exodus of players to Europe where right. they can still go and make a million five or two million to right. play half as many games. Uh, and most of the money they make over there is, is relatively tax-free. And I guess we're starting to see a little bit of that already. Um is it something that you do? You have clients that you have um, have have uh, have want, that have wound up in Europe? Sure, and and I think the the what the, what you're describing is very much driven by analytics. It was the analytics community that started uh, charting a 
average or typical player's performance decline at around starting at around 28 years of age. So the analytics community started growing within each NHL's hockey operations department, and they were presenting data to teams, to general managers, to club presidents about how it didn't make cap sense to be signing guys at 32, 33 years of age to multi-year deals at a significant percentage of a team's cap when the decline they're charting had started at 28 and from the point of being signed was going to, according to their data and analysis, decline further. And it was really with the advent of analytics, we saw a movement of cap dollars from older players to younger players. Do you concur with that assessment, the analytics community's assessment, generally speaking? I, I, I think that there are many different things that go into a player's value for a particular organization. And I believe in free markets. I believe a player is worth what he's worth when he becomes a total unrestricted free agent and 31 or now 32 teams have an opportunity to bid on his services. That's his value, right? That's his value today when you see what the 32 teams are willing to pay a player. And I think that um, analytics are a tool in the toolbox. There is no mathematical formula or algorithm that is going to give anybody a Stanley Cup. And until there is a way to measure what, what's in here. Yeah. There's, an, analytics are, are limited, but useful for, for many different reasons, but nothing more than that right now. Well, I certainly could argue that Spetz's value was uh, much greater than um, his salary. And uh, I think we're about to see uh, Perry and his impact on the Montreal Canadiens um, that has already been felt in these playoffs uh, come to the fore again. Um, the question, I guess, is how do you identify uh, which of those elder statesmen, for lack of a better term, is going to have that kind of impact, right? Exactly. Well, hey, so so you, you talk about the analytics thing, and and why why has why has analytics become such a a, a driving force? Well, I mean, I mean, you talk about the salaries, you talk about this. Is it is it because there's there are non hockey people that are control purse strings that can actually understand numbers that way that can't understand, you know, your heart or your head. I don't want to come across as anti-analytics because I use them in negotiations and I think they're very Only useful. the good ones, Alan. Only the good ones. <laughs> uh, and, 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 I believe, and I believe analytics has a place at the table. What I, what I also believe is that it's taken on more prominence within hockey decision-making then it's justified right now. So I'm not anti-analytics and I use them and I believe in them, but I think there is nothing out there presently 
that is the holy grail. And there are too many teams right now that are making big decisions. Clearly, analytics is driving those decisions. And, and I think it, hockey has always been somewhat, the NHL has always been somewhat of a copycat league. So you saw the rise of analytics really start in baseball and, 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 and that kind of um, qualitative analysis moved over to the NBA and then inevitably was going to bleed down into the NHL. And, and once a few teams started using it, and it is a, if you ever want to see an NHL club executive clam up fast, ask him to talk about how they use analytics and what the structure of their analytics department is and what data they, they get from different outside sources. I mean, no one will talk about it. It's a state secret. And everyone thinks that they have it figured out better than the other guy. I've heard reports of general managers feeding analytics down to coaches behind the bench and, and, and telling them which players to play and what lines to put together to counteract an opposing team's lines when they have home ice advantage in the last change. And when all, I, I just think that when you're down to that level, there's too much randomness to a hockey game to be able to have like what you have in baseball, a, a pitcher and a batter where it is a one-on-one contest. Mm -hmm. When you've got five people randomly on the ice against five people, um, again, there's information to glean, there's data to consider, but if you're starting to put lines together and, and play against certain lines strictly on analytics and alternating the way coaches coach a game, I, I just don't think the, the science is at a point where uh, that is a fruitful way to, to run your team. I agree. It's a flawed system. Uh, time is our enemy. We must go. And I'm sure you have other things you'd, uh, you need to do and would rather, probably rather be doing. Uh, but we always thank you uh, for, uh, for joining us. It's always insightful and uh, intriguing uh, to chat. Uh, stay healthy, Alan, and we'll see you soon, I hope. Thank you, guys. It's always a privilege being with you. Alan Walsh, we'll come back with more after these messages. Again, our thanks to Alan Walsh uh, for joining us. Uh, anything to add, Mr. Shannon, before we uh, bid these folks uh, find it, uh, fond to do? No, I, that's, it's, I just think it's going to be such a strange summer. We, we've already seen, even today, Bob, uh, free agent players being given permission to talk to other teams to try to get a better deal. Dougie Hamilton in Carolina is the latest guy that's been given permission to talk to other teams um, long before free agency actually hits because, you know, these teams are going to be tight for money. and. Yeah. Uh, it's unfortunate. What's unfortunate for a player of, of Hamilton's ilk or any of the other good free agents is their timing sucks with the pandemic, with the cash flow, with everything that's gone on to be a free agent right now is not a good time. I don't disagree, but it's better than working for a living. Uh, for uh, John Shannon, Bob McCown, we'll uh, see you tomorrow. Goodbye, everybody.